Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. Good morning, Harvest. My name is Brian Dye. I was told that all the guys had to wear suit jackets and ties. What happened? <laughs> no, actually, I never dress up. I never dress up unless uh, I'm doing a wedding. And this afternoon, I'm privileged to, uh, to officiate a wedding of some great friends. And so I didn't want to have to change again today. So I just figured out I'll look, you know, special for you guys. So um, as, as Scott already said, as he's already taken half of my message um, and half of my time, um, Alita, uh, we started a house church about five years ago, and, and the heart is to continue to multiply throughout the city of Chicago. Uh, we're two on the south side, two on the west side, and two on the near, well, the northwest side of Chicago. And our heart is just to continue to raise up leaders for the city of Chicago to make disciples of the, of the nations, of all people groups. I've been married to my lovely wife, Heidi, for 13 years. Uh, she is originally from Door County, Wisconsin, and uh, if you've ever been up there, it looks nothing like Chicago. Um, she is also a Packer fan, and two days out of the year, we don't sleep together, we don't talk. Um, it's just, it's, it's really rough, those two days of the year, but the other 350 days of the year, we're, we have a great marriage, and uh, so I praise God for her. And, uh, but yeah, um, just honored to be here. I, I, I have the privilege of being on staff with Grip Outreach for Youth, been on staff for two years now. And, uh, what I love about Grip is that Grip has a heart for people like me. I grew up in, in the neighborhood of Humble Park. How many are familiar with Humble Park? Humble Park's on the near Northwest side of the city. Uh, when I was growing up, it's predominantly Puerto Rican. And does anybody, has anyone ever met a Puerto Rican before? Okay, a few. It's just, I, I, I'm going to put my wife on a blast, but she didn't meet her first Puerto Rican until she went to college at Trinity in Deerfield. She met my best friend uh, who we grew up together with, and that he connected us, and I praise God for that. Uh, but that's the neighborhood I grew up in, a gang-ridden community. Walking to elementary school, I, I would walk three blocks, three blocks to school as, as a kid. And in those three blocks, I would walk through three different gang territories. It was a heavily condensed gang area. And so obviously that led to a lot of gang battles, a lot of drive-by shootings, a lot of murders. And so growing up, friend after friend after friend, I would go to funeral after funeral after funeral. I was privileged, I was honored to have a believing mother and grandmother, much like Timothy, right, in the Bible. A mother and a grandmother who raised me in the foundations of the truth of the gospel, who loved me, who read the Bible to me, who, who prayed for me. I had my father in the house, which was a rarity. None of my friends had their father in the house. But sometimes as a kid, I wish that my father wasn't there. My father was an alcoholic, lost his job when I was about seven or eight years old, never went back to work, became abusive. Um, my mom, as a result of a lot of the tension in home, became manic depressive. 
She became bipolar. She was in and out of the hospital. And so me and my four brothers, we kind of had to raise ourselves in a way. We kind of had to become men before our time. And as I was wrestling through going to church and, and hearing from my mom and grandmother that, that God loves me and, and just not being able to see, how does God love me? Is, is God real? Is God really powerful? Why then does he allow my neighborhood to be as it is? Why does he allow what goes on in my family to be as it is? At age 12, as I was wrestling through a lot of these questions, a, a man named Paul Terry moved into my neighborhood. And Paul Terry, he was probably in his mid-30s at the time. He was a carpenter by trade. He was married to his wife, Yvonne, and, and he would begin to invite me over for dinner after church. Literally, the first time I would sit at a dinner table and see a husband and a wife sitting down together, sharing a meal together, and they actually looked like they loved each other. And I saw what a marriage was supposed to look like. Even though I heard from the preachers what marriage is supposed to like, look like, I never saw it in life. On the weekends, he, he would do work projects for older couples in the church. And he would, he would call me up and say, Brian, why don't you come with me as I go paint a, a room for, for Mrs. Andrus in the church. And so he would pick me up and we would go. And he, he taught me how to roll a paintbrush and, and a roller. He taught me work ethic. As I got a little older, he was like, Brian, have you ever drove a car before? I was only 14. He probably shouldn't have been doing this. But, <laughs> but you know, he put me in the driver's seat, and we, he had me driving around, and he taught me how to drive. As I started growing facial hair, he taught me how to shave. He taught me the, the little things of life that, 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 that a father should be teaching their child. And it was through his life that the gospel became real, that I saw the love of God displayed, that I saw the grace of God lived out, that I saw that it wasn't all what goes on in life, but that there's a greater God who oversees it all. I want us to look at the book of Luke chapter 1. So you could go ahead and turn there. But I want to ask you a question. Out of all the authors in the New Testament, who wrote the most of the New Testament? Who wrote most of the New Testament? Many of us would automatically say Paul, right? He wrote 13 letters of the New Testament. But let me, let me argue that while he wrote the most books, by words, if you do a word count, Luke wrote the most words in two books. The Gospel of Luke, and what's the second book? The book of Acts. We've got some Bible scholars here. Good job. Luke. Now, we, we, could, we could look at Paul and be like, well, Paul's a Pharisee, the Pharisee. He, he, he was above his own class. He, he was a religious leader. He, of course, you know, when he got saved, God was able to use him mightily to do great things, to plant churches and to make disciples and to write all these letters because he had time to do this. He didn't have nothing else to do, right? But when we look at Luke, what was Luke's occupation? He was a doctor. He was a physician. 
This is a man who devoted his life to helping others, right? A doctor is a pretty demanding schedule. You always have people who are in need of your expertise, of your care. Paul ends up going into a city, a small town called Troas. And there he runs into Luke. In Acts chapter 16, you could read the story. He he runs into Luke and Luke begins to follow Paul. And for about 15 years, Luke is following Paul as he goes from city to city. Preaching the gospel and planting churches. And Luke is being discipled by Paul. But I believe the reason why, specifically why Luke went with Paul was because, again, Luke was a physician. He was a doctor. And Paul started having some health issues. Book of Galatians kind of gives me the hint that his eyesight was beginning to go out because he said that if you could have, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. He tells the churches of Galatia. The thorn in the flesh that Paul talks about, I think, was his eyesight starting to go out. And so he takes Luke with him, and again, for about 15 years, while, while Paul's preaching the gospel, while Paul's in jail, Luke is following him. And in all this time, he is meeting Christians who were eyewitnesses of the gospel, who were eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ's life, and saw his miracles, and heard his teachings. And he would begin to take down notes and, and, and compile them together. Luke chapter 1. Verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch, and I'm reading from the ESV translation, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. As we look at the book of Acts, what was Luke's motivation, or I'm sorry, the book of Luke, what was Luke's motivation to write this gospel letter? I mean, it was to get his book in the canon of scriptures, right? To, to be one of the inspired, 40 inspired authors of scriptures. To, so that 2,000 years later, millions of people would have read his writings and been amazed by it. Was that his motivation? <laughs> no. He, he had no idea that was getting into the canon. He, he had no idea that we would be reading it today. At the end of verse 4, you see that he wrote it for an individual. And this individual, his name is Theophilus. All that we have in the book of Luke was written for one individual, one man. Imagine that. The work and the effort that Luke put together to compile 15 years of notes into what we have is about 20 pages of our Bible, 24 chapters for one individual. Why does he do that? Why does he put that effort? Why does he put that time into it? Well, again, look at verse 1. And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished 
among us. There were many others who saw Jesus' ministry, who saw his life, who saw his miracles, who heard his teachings, whose, whose lives were impacted. And they began to write narratives. Some of them we have today. The Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of John. The Gospel of Mark. And there were others that never made the 66 books of the Bible, but people were writing down what they saw, what they experienced, so that they could pass it on to somebody else, so that somebody else could receive the grace that they have received. Luke is a recipient of those individuals. Luke never walked with Jesus. He wasn't one of the 12 disciples. He never saw his miracles. He never saw how he healed. He, he never heard his teachings firsthand. But he was a recipient from others. Others wrote down and they passed it on and they ministered to Luke. Who passed on the truth to you? Who are the individuals in your life? Again, I mentioned my mom, my grandmother, and Paul Terry, a carpenter. If we were to go around and share our testimonies, we could all attest to numerous people, most likely, who've loved us over the years when we weren't worthy of love, who prayed for us when we didn't seem hopeful, who, 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 who preached the gospel to us even though at times we didn't want to hear it. Many, many individuals compiled narratives and they passed it on. Verse 2, just as those from the beginning where eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. Again, it was delivered to Luke. Verse 3. So because of all this, what does Luke say in verse 3? It seemed good to me. Like, duh, it makes sense, right? Like if, if, if how, how many of us received the gospel of grace because we went looking for it? How many of us realized that we could save ourselves and we've just figured out a puzzle of life and, and voila, we, we have eternal life now? No, the gospel is, is a message of grace, right? That when we did not search after Christ, he came searching after us. When we did not love God, he loved us first. When we wanted nothing to do with him, he, he came after us. He pursued us and he called us by name. I pray that everyone in this room has received that grace. For salvation is not of works. Because why? Then everyone would boast, right? Look what I have done. Look what I have accomplished. That was Paul before the gospel. That was Paul before Jesus Christ. But when Jesus Christ appeared to him, he realized that his salvation was all grace. It was all the work of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ hung on the cross, he said, it is finished. There's nothing left for us to do but to trust in him. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past. Right? That the gospel began to take root and began to impact Luke and began to transform his life. And so the things he wanted to do, he no longer wanted to do, right? Like his, his desires began to change. His, his motivation began to change. It was, his life was no longer about him. It wasn't about how much he could earn as a doctor, right? But it was who he could serve as a doctor. 
It wasn't just the, just the good stuff that he could acquire himself, but what good could he do for others? What impact can he make for the kingdom of God? So it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to do what? To write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. What do we know about Theophilus? Very little. He's not mentioned much in scriptures. But we know a little bit. One, from this passage, we know that he's given a title. And that title is that of most excellence. Not a title that believers would call each other. When Paul would introduce himself, he would call himself a bondservant, a slave, a servant. Jesus Christ himself being God, humbled himself, right? Took the form of a servant, washed the feet of his disciples. Most excellent is a title that's only used two other times in scriptures. It's used both in the book of Acts. It's used with most excellent Felix and most excellent Festus. These are two Roman governors who, who jail Christians, who tell Christians not to be preaching of the way because the Roman government was not fond of the Christian faith because in Rome there was only one emperor, there was only one king, and there could be no other. And so if you know the history of Rome, this one emperor came in control named Nero. He was ruthless. He would throw parties for his friends and, and his, his loved ones and his, and his relatives. And they, this is the day before streetlights. And so the party was going on at night. What did he do to light up the pathway? He would hang Christians up on poles. He would tar them and light them on fire. For entertainment, you know, it can get kind of boring. And so they had these Roman Colosseums. And to fill up the, the Colosseum, he would toss Christians in there to fight against the lions. Obviously, the Christians never won. This was the entertainment of the day. Luke is concerned about this individual. He's concerned about this Roman governor. And he wants to write about this man named Jesus to him. So that as we see in verse 4, so that he may have certainty concerning the things he had been taught. Someone had ministered to him previously, whether that was Luke or somebody else. Someone came along and preached the gospel to him. And he, he, he heard it, but he, didn't, he wasn't convinced about it. And so why doesn't Luke just take the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of John and, and, and say, Theophilus, why don't you read this and become convinced? Why do we even have four Gospels in, in our Bible when they all basically say the same message? Because they all have a different target audience in mind. Matthew is primarily written to his Brothers, the Jews, to show that the Messiah had in fact come, that Jesus is the King, right? Each gospel has a different audience in mind. And this is what's so great about the gospel. 
The gospel is simple enough that a little kid could understand it and comprehend it and receive it. Yet it's so expansive and wonderful that we will continue to study until the day we die and continue to be amazed by it. This is why Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 1. And he says, your faith is being spoken of throughout the whole world. Imagine that. Harvest. Your faith is being spoken of throughout the whole world. People in, in Asia, in Africa, people in Europe are, are speaking of the faith of this church. And then a few verses later, he says, this is why I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. The day that we believe that the gospel is something we received years ago, but don't need today, is the day that we begin to die spiritually. That we begin to trust in ourselves and what we have accomplished. The gospel is beautiful. That the gospel is, is something that is continuously being unpacked in our own hearts and our own lives. And so Luke, rather than just passing on Mark's gospel, rather than just passing on John's gospel, rather than just passing on Matthew's gospel, he, he, he obviously knew this guy, Theophilus. He knew the questions about Jesus that he had. He knew the questions about the faith that he had himself. He was a student of Theophilus. And so he studied, again, his notes that he compiled from 15 years following Paul and interviewing people and, and research, and he compiled it and wrote it for one specific individual. How many of us have gone to college and have dreaded research papers? And this is in a day and age where you, I mean, when I was in college 20 years ago, almost, you know, you had to go to the library and pull out those uh, index cards or whatever. You know, internet was just starting to catch on and, and whatnot. You know, today, you know, you're doing research, you just Google, right? A million hits come up. Research today isn't even that hard, really. You know, it's just copy and paste and put it in, right? <laughs> but but this, this day, like... Again, Luke is going from person to person asking questions. He's, he's having pages and pages of scrolls and of notes that he's compiling, right? And he can't just save it on his hard drive. He carries it around with him wherever he goes, right? And then when it's time to research, he can't just do a word search to find what he's looking for, right? He, he reads it over again and, and then begins to write stuff down. And Why does he do this? Because of his love for Theophilus. Because he understood that other people have done the same for him. They've taken the gospel message and they've spoken it to him in a way that he could understand it and hear it and receive it. And so it made sense for him to do likewise. Let me ask you another question. In the day and age where Rome put Christians to death and took away their homes... And put them in jail. Luke even, in his travels with Paul, saw Paul jailed over and over again. Imagine, Luke, while he's writing these 24 chapters that we have today. And he's writing them to this one individual, Theophilus. He doesn't know what Theophilus is going to do with that. 
This could simply become testimony in the court of law to be used to persecute Luke, to put him in jail, to put him in the Colosseum, to put him to light the night. Why, why, why would Luke ever do this when it could take such a cost at his life? Because he had been a recipient of the gospel of grace. And he understood that the gospel of grace changed his life. And, and he would be willing to take whatever cost to see the same gospel permeate another life. How many of us are willing to take the amount of work to study someone that we love, to hear the questions that they're asking, and then to study the scriptures and, and to begin to bring those two worlds together and, and speak to them and either write out a letter or, or sit down with them for hours and pour over the scriptures with them. How many of us are willing to walk weeks and months and years praying for somebody? And ministering to them so that they may become certain of the things of the gospel. Who is your Theophilus? Who is your Theophilus in your life? Who is that person in your family? That co-worker? That neighbor? That God has placed on your heart? But we tend to make excuses. I'm just a doctor. Or I'm just a lawyer. Or I'm just a waiter. I'm not Pastor David or one of the other pastors. I've, I've not gone to seminary. I've not studied the scriptures. And I'm not eloquent with it. How easy it is to make excuses. Right? And I do the same thing myself. <laughs> and again, what I love about Luke is that Luke was not one of the apostles. He was not a full-time pastor. He, he, he never went to seminary or Bible school. Get this. He is the only author of all the Bible that wasn't even Jewish. He was a Greek. He was a Gentile. So he didn't even grow up having the Old Testament preached to him. He didn't memorize the Torah as most Jewish children did. This is a man in the midst of his busy schedule. He said, yo, I may not be able to preach the gospel to thousands like Paul would. I may not be able to plant churches all over the world like Paul did. I, I may not be able to write 13 letters to 13 different churches like Paul did. <laughs> but if I could pick one person... And if I could pour my life out to this one person and love on them and pray for them and share the gospel with them, whether they receive it or not, not knowing the outcome, let me do that. That is something that all believers could do. Now, Luke does all this work. He doesn't know the result. He doesn't know, again, if he's going to go to jail, he's going to be killed. He doesn't know if Theophilus is going to receive it or not. But look, turn real quick to the book of Acts, chapter 1. 
Remember, we talked about Luke wrote two books of the Bible, right? So after Luke gets done with the Gospel of Luke and, you know, he begins to write another letter. He's like, man, this letter now, this letter is going into the canon of scriptures. And people are going to be reading this and seeing the power of the Holy Spirit and the church at work. And they're going to be amazed and, and, and they're going to speak about me for centuries down the road. Look at the first few words. In the first book, oh, who? Theophilus. I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Who is this book written for? Theophilus. This book, again, he did more research and he wrote more to write to one individual, one person. Why does he write a second book? Let me make the argument that Theophilus got saved. Why could I be so bold in saying that? One is that you notice his title is no longer there. He's no longer most excellent Theophilus. He is Theophilus. You don't go to a Roman governor and not give him the, due, the respect due his title. He calls him Theophilus. Reason number two, I believe, that Theophilus got saved. Look at the content of the book of Acts. How many of you are going to start a, a Bible study with your unsaved neighbors and co-workers and study the book of Acts with them? And, and be like, yo, I really want you to see how Christians are persecuted, how, how Paul is stoned and left for dead. And, and I want to see how, how the church gathers together and they sell the possessions to give to the poor. I mean, this will just be great for you. This will really enter you into the kingdom. No, the book of Acts is a discipleship book. It's a book for the church. It's a book for believers. This now, once you enter into the kingdom, is how we live. It's who we are as a church. We're the called out ones. We're the ones who take this gospel message to the ends of the world. This is who we are. There's one more reason why I think Theophilus got saved. How do we have the book of Luke and Acts today? Remember, the day, this is hard for us to think about, <laughs> but the day before you could just hit save on your computer and it's saved on your hard drive, and later on you could say, well, Theophilus didn't receive it, but, you know, I could sell to a book publisher and make some money off it today, right? No. It, it wasn't even that he could run to Kinko's and say, hey, you know, before I, I, I pass this on to the office, I'm not sure what he's going to do with it. And, you know, he might burn it up. He might kill me, whatever. Let me make a copy and, and put it away in a safe place so that someone could be blessed by it later on. No. Even how many of us, when we write personal letters to other individuals, make a copy of it? When you, when you write a, a personal love letter to your spouse... How many of you make a copy of it and store it away in a safe place? No, it's intended for that one person, right? And so how do we have it today, 2,000 years later? How do they have it to consider to bring into the canon of scriptures 150 years later? Because Theophilus would have received it, and he would have passed it on to somebody else. His life had been transformed and he wanted another life to be transformed by the power of the gospel. He understood that other people, including Luke, have passed on the gospel message to him. And, and how could he keep it to himself? And he passed it on. 
And those people passed it on. And they passed it on. And they passed it on. Again, I, I praise God that the Lord in His grace and His mercy sent Paul Terry into my life who built upon a foundation that was laid by my grandmother and mother. That he walked life with me. There weren't hundreds of people. Nobody knows Paul Terry's name. He didn't plant churches. He never pastored. But I will tell you this. In two years, Paul Terry impacted my life in a way that he never knew. And what's crazy is Paul Terry, he, he, he moved to Atlanta within two years of, of, of me getting to know him. And I went to visit Paul Terry about five years after. I was a college student, and, and, and he invited me to come stay with him over my spring break. And you know what? While I was in Paul Terry's house, he had a neighbor a kid that was about 12, 13 years old. The whole week I was there, this kid was at his house. And Paul Terry was sharing the gospel with him. And Paul Terry was loving on him. This was a kid who, who was living with his gay mother. Never had a father figure in his life. Paul Terry could have been like, you know what? <laughs> I'm busy. I've got plenty to do. But he loved on this individual for years. Paul Terry was a man who understood what the gospel does. It changes lives and allows us to be used for God's glory to change the lives of others. Let me pray. Dear Father, Lord God, I thank you for this church and I thank you for the ministry of your gospel, Lord God, that has changed hearts of individuals, that has taken hearts of stone and created hearts of flesh, that have taken us from darkness and transferred us into the marvelous light, that have restored families, restored marriages, Lord God. God, we praise you for that. And dear Father, we pray that this legacy, this, this, this gospel of grace, Lord God, may not stop in our generation. But Lord God, we will look on our block. We will look at our jobs, Lord God. We would look amongst our family and ask of you, Lord God, who is the Theophilus in our lives? Lord God, who have you called us to, to preach the gospel to, to, to love, to endure with, to, to bear with, Lord God, for weeks, for months, for even years? Lord God, not knowing what you're going to do, but being willing to be faithful and to be used of you. And so, Lord God, we pray that this church would touch hundreds and even thousands of lives in this community and beyond to the nations. All for your glory, all for your son's name. Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.
Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.